This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. There's all different kinds of media, right? And every every media is 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 specifically good at certain things, right? Like for in terms of information density, there's nothing better than the written word, right? You can just get across so much, you can consume it so quickly. In terms of like spectacle, there's nothing better than film, the the image, right? The moving image. Audio is great at emotional intimacy. And at, and if you are going to have a career in audio and you're gonna be any anywhere good at it, you start to recognize that and you start to like go for it in the subjects you're interviewing, you start to recognize when they're being actually honest, you start to be able to hear it because you know the audience can hear it too. Alex Bloomberg is one of the most celebrated entrepreneurs in podcasting. He worked for 20 years with one of the biggest names in public radio, Ira Glass, helping him to produce NPR's beloved This American Life. Later, Alex launched Planet Money, the creme de la creme of financial podcasts. His journey to build and fund his own company, Gimlet Media, is carefully and hilariously documented in his groundbreaking podcast, Startup. Gimlet now produces dozens of shows, many of them award-winning, and recently Spotify acquired Gimlet for $230 million. And the superpower Alex has that's made all this possible? Vulnerability. Coming up, You'll hear how Alex's early jobs helping Russian refugees and teaching middle school science prepared him for a career in podcasting. How Alex discovered and cultivated his signature storytelling style. How avoiding emotional dishonesty leads to greater success and deeper connections. Alex lets us hear the very moment when he blundered his way through his first big investment pitch and the romantic speed bump that prompted Alex to go all in on pursuing his dreams. This is Million Dollar Mind, remarkable stories of transformation and how to shift your mindset to accelerate success with entrepreneur, author, and mindset expert, Julia Pimsler. Alex, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks uh, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, as you know from doing uh-huh. podcasts, one of the most fun <laughs> parts is that you get to do all this research on someone, even if you know them. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like I've spent the last two days with you. And um, I'm not going to make you like roll all the way back to like Cincinnati. <laughs> you were doing research. Where, where were we, What were you doing? Like just like Google searching well, and stuff? Well, I was or, like, binge like... listening to so many podcasts, oh, right. which yes. was super fun. I that's got to true. revisit Startup. I hadn't heard Without Fail yet. So mm-hmm. that's like my new favorite podcast. I uh-huh. listened to like five episodes. Uh-huh. Especially love the one with Nina Jacobson about oh, making yeah. hits. Oh my God, she's so good. She was amazing. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I had a lot of fun with that. Mm-hmm. But I think... I think I'm going to ask you about some stuff today that you don't usually talk about. Okay. And you said that was cool with you. So That's we're going to dive in. All right. So listen, one of the things that I think about a lot is reinvention. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, these days, very few people go get a job, stay in that job, or even stay in that career. Yeah. And you've reinvented yourself a few times. Yes. We've known each other since the 90s. You know, I've yeah. reinvented myself a bunch of times. I know. I know. <laughs> Would you have ever, like, we, we met each other in, like, 1990 or something like that? Yeah, 1990. Yeah, could you have, a, I, I mean. No, you know, you're not going to interview me. I no, no, about I to know. do it. <laughs> but I'm just, like, thinking, no, because you have, like, I've just, you have a lot of, like, you saw me at, like, my most callow and unfortunate and ridiculous 20-something Well, fortunately, I have a terrible memory. So it's a good thing you're on the podcast (laughs) so I can ask you about like what did it feel like in 1990? That's my first question because just to set it up a minute, 
like I went from right filmmaker to fundraiser to entrepreneur to now business coach. Uh-huh. And I'm on my fourth career. And each one required a lot of reinvention, both about my identity, but also skill sets and, you know, mindset and all those things I like to talk about. So I'm curious to do your journey a little bit and think about, you've already been interviewed a lot about the external, right? Like Mm -hmm. we know the facts, right? Right. You were at This American Life for 20 years working with Ira Glass. You got this incredible training, then went out on your own, started Gimlet, recently sold that to Spotify. Congratulations. Thank you. So each of those Alexes, like I've seen at least four Alexes in that, right? There was Mm -hmm. like the kid in Chicago I met who was living with four roommates and trying to figure it all out. And dating I want to go back friend. there. Dating my best friend. Hey, Katie, hope you're listening. <laughs> um, then, you know, there's the Alex who was working with Ira, the Alex who launched Gimlet. So just take me through some of those, if you don't mind. And let's start in Chicago. Like, what were you doing that summer? I can't remember. I was, I mean, yeah. So I'm trying to think how many careers I've been, I've had. It's at least four. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it, and I, 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 I have always thought of myself as a very late bloomer. Like I, it took me a long time to figure out even what I wanted my career to be. Um, so I, in, yeah, in Chicago, I was, um, I graduated from college. I had studied Russian in college and I had lived for a year in Russia. So the, the one marketable skill I had, and I, I guess marketable is in air quotes, was uh, that I spoke Russian and I didn't know, I couldn't, I didn't have any other real skills, you know. Did the CIA I, I try yeah. to recruit you? Like, what are we no. going to do with that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so like, that was the, you could go try to work for like, yeah, I mean, CIA was like a, a job, like people who studied Russian and they were like, well, maybe I could become an analyst or something. Like it was like you had to pass all these tests and stuff or foreign service or something. There was no way I was going to be able to do that. I didn't have a good enough academic record to do that stuff. Um, so what were you doing for money? So I was, I worked at a, I worked at a social service agency helping Russian refugees settle in Chicago. That was my first job. Um, and yeah, you're, yeah. And like, uh, your best friend and my girlfriend, Katie worked at another social service agency working with Vietnamese refugees. And we would like, we would sort of like trade, trade stories about that. That was like the early years of Chicago was like both of us in sort of refugee services. Um, and I had a little office and my clients would come in and I would help them with their resumes and they would talk to me in Russian about what they were good at. And I would try to translate that into like the American job market and just sort of coach them for like how to get a job. It was a brand new experience for like, cause they came from Soviet. Russia, where you were graduated and then handed a job, right. and that was it. But you probably and heard some pretty interesting stories too of like people I, who left Russia, moved to America. I did. I mean, it was it was there was it was like there was there was a lot of like narratives that I heard. There were there was a lot of sort of classic narratives of like um, they were all Jewish refugees because there was like um, there was like it was hard to get a job. It was hard to get the job you want. There was sort of a Jewish ceiling inside Soviet Russia. Um, Still and so, today. No, this was like in the nineties. This okay. was like, well, yeah, I don't, so I don't, it's not yeah, like pogrom I, I, yes, Russia, right? But not, that yeah, is no, kind and it of wasn't shocking like, that yeah. in the nineties that would be a thing. Yeah, I mean, it was like, yeah, no, you had like on your passport, it was like Russian, Latvian, you know, sort of Lithuanian, all the Soviet republics, and then Jewish was was a thing that you put on your passport. <laughs> so I didn't like, that. yeah, wow. yeah. So like, it wasn't like violent, but it was like you you're just kept out of certain things. Okay, you so you're working yeah. with Russian refugees, helping them fix up their resumes. Yeah. Did you have any like massive career plan in mind? Like I want to go tell stories and make media mm. or no? No, 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 no. I, 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 I was a lover of long form journalism. Like I read the New Yorker every week and I read Harper's Magazine, which was a big magazine back then. And I was just, I would, I, I loved that stuff. Like I had like, 
my heroes were like writers for like, you know, geeky writers for the New Yorker, you know, like, you know, um, those long stories, I few people ever finished. <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell's first article in the New Yorker about the tipping. I remember reading it. I remember where I was when I read it. And like, it was just like, you know, that was like, so that was the thing. And like David Remnick and like all these people, like they were, they were sort of my, my heroes. And so I was a big fan of all that stuff, but I never in a million years thought that I could even have anything close to that kind of career. I don't know why. I mean, I don't know why it felt so impossible for me, a, a relatively sort of upper middle class Jewish kid. From some, and I and I think about that sometimes. If it was that, it was hard for me to imagine that. Like it's, it, you know, it's it must be even more hard for people who who are who feel even more alienated from like the power structure. Um, so, so what was your identity? You felt like were you like an advocate? Like you weren't a, I thought maybe you could be like, I was always a storyteller. You weren't a storyteller. No, I didn't have an, I was just like, I was trying to figure it out. I was just just like like mostly just like trying to like, yeah, I didn't have like an identity. I wasn't very, um, I think my identity, if if anything, was like a little bit like, I'm not the kind of person who has an identity. You know, I'm not going (laughs) to strive. Striving's not cool. Anti-achieving. Yeah. But I think, uh, I think for a lot of people who have an anti-achievement sort of like, facade it's just masking like a deep desire to achieve and a fear of failure if you try so i think that was me and so how did you make your way to new york so i well new york was a long way away so like basically um then i got another job as a teacher i was a teacher for a long time and as a teacher i i eventually was like okay i'm gonna get it i got an internship in media i got an internship at, at a magazine in new york while i was still in chicago during my summer um, Were you teaching middle school, high school? I was school? teaching middle school science, actually. Um, basically, I, it took a long time to get to New York. I didn't move to New York for another decade. I was in, I was in Chicago for 12, 12 years. But the big, my big turning point was getting the job at This American Life, which was like sort of my big, the big step in my career. I, I feel like I got to understand how kids' brains work in a really interesting way. Like you don't, you forget, like in middle school especially, like I remember feeling like, I felt like I was pretty cool at going to college. I was like, you know, like a pretty cool guy and like, or whatever, you know, or something. I was like, I had something to offer. And, uh, but like the kids at that age, they don't care at all about you. If you are not in middle school with them right now, their social thing, they could, they can't, they can't even pay attention to you. And I remember feeling like, the the adults and Charlie Brown, you know how they talk. They're wah, wah, wah. that's what I was saying. That's <laughs> that's everything that that's every word that came out of my mouth. That's how it like landed in their brains. Probably... And the kids who are younger, I think, could pay a lot more attention to adults. And then once you get into college, you can start to. I mean, once you get into high school, you can start to like pay a little bit more attention to adults. But middle school in particular, I think sounds like being a middle school teacher is like the New York song. Like if you can make it there, you'll make it <laughs> <Sort> anywhere. <laughs> like you can survive being a middle school science teacher. Yes, you can make stories and share them with the world i guess so yeah I mean, it, <laughs> that was your first audience Alex. It, it was it was my first audience and there is something about that i will say that that was um trying to figure out how to i never actually put it together until you just said that but i think that's true like trying to figure out how to retain the attention of a group of 12 and 13 year and 14 year olds um is a really good training for trying to retain anybody's attention and like trying to keep it exciting and keep it moving especially when you're talking about science and so later in my career as a journalist i sort of that that was sort of how I made my name is sort of like explaining very very complicated topics on the on the radio and, on, and in podcasts and I I think being a middle middle school science teacher was like my first shot at that and like I spent four years like developing lesson plans and really trying to think through like how am I going to make this 
real to kids. Right. I'm also thinking of another parallel of like, and you just have to show up every day and bring it, right? Even if they're like rolling their eyes and you know, we, I have kids about that age. So there's a lot of like, whatever mom, Mm -hmm. and you just still have to bring it. So that that probably is still have to. Yeah, you do. You have to just keep like, you have to basically pretend that you're getting the feedback because <laughs> you are, it is important that things do stay in their brains. They do need your love. They do need your attention, even if they don't show you. So you do have to like keep, you just have to fake it till you make it a little bit. With so here's my question. So the morning you woke up and were like, okay, I'm going to go meet with Ira Glass and try to get this job. Uh-huh. What was that day like? That's a good question. I, I don't remember the very first day I showed up at on, on my very first job there. You don't like, remember the interview? There was no interview. I remember, um, I remember I pitched them a ton of stories. Like I just like, I remember there was like, they were, I, I, I somehow like met people who worked there or like knew sort of the way it worked enough to know that they, they, you needed to pitch them story ideas. And so I was just like, okay, I'm just going to pitch it, pitch a bunch of story ideas. And I remember writing a bunch of like story ideas. Um, Did they take any? No, because they were awful. No, they were (laughs) like, I remember one in particular, this is the most embarrassing one that I remember is like, so I had this whole document and I knew, you know, the, the theme of this American life, if you haven't heard, is that like, um, they, they pick a theme and then they choose a bunch of stories, like three to five stories around that theme. And so that's the way each show is organized. And so the theme can be love or parents or heartbreak or whatever. And then they'll have like three or five stories or one or two or whatever. And so I cleverly arranged my, which I now know is not the way they do it at all. But in my pitch, I was like, I pitched the whole show and then all the, all the stories that were part of the show, which was like, just like the height of it. Like Eric, like, I'm going to make it easy for you. I'm going to make it easy. I'm going <laughs> to, I get your whole show worked out. And I had a whole bunch of them and the one that I remember that is the most cringy is I was like, I, I had a show that was called Gardens, you know, it's Flowers from the Dead Earth, um, which was, I thought, a line from a T.S. Eliot poem, The Wasteland, that I'd never actually read. <laughs> I think it's a book I read in middle school. Oh, no. wait, that was Flowers in the Attic. Yeah, Flowers in the <laughs> Attic. No, this is like <laughs> Flowers from the Dead Earth. Was the line I thought I was pitching. I actually went back and looked up the poem, and it's actually lilacs out of the dead land. <laughs> <laughs> so I got, you got like the flower part right. There's, yeah, it's I got two words out of the six right. Hey, I got you were flowers. a science teacher. You should have been able to get the right flower. <laughs> I got dead and the. Those are the two words I got right out of the whole thing. And then I was like, I was like, and I wanted to do one of the stories was like community gardens. I wanted to do a community gardens story, which. I, you know, which is like, and now I realize it's like the, the, the height of cliche. Like, I don't know what I want to so, say so, about So they gave gardens. you the middle school cold shoulder. They were just like, yeah. no. They, wah, no, wah, they, wah. they were, they were no, but like, I think there was something about the moxie of like the, the sheer volume that I you did. kept coming back. And they were like, and I think they were just desperate. Like, I think Ira had started the show and he was like, it'll be, you know, and he had two producers and they were coming out weekly and it was just insane. And he has an insane work, work ethic. And so like, they were just, they just needed people. And so he was like, can we throw you this thing? And so eventually... I think he got a little bit of money and he hired an assistant. And so he said, will you be my assistant? So that's how I, I basically started becoming the administrative assistant. Um, so what was the mindset shift from going from being like freelancer, teacher, trying to figure my life out to, okay, now I'm the assistant to arguably one of the biggest names in public radio? Well, I mean, the mindset happened a little bit earlier. And it, was, I, 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 it has to do, I've, I've told the story, I think, publicly. So I think... But it has to do with like our mutual friend, uh, like my longtime girlfriend in Chicago broke up with me. And, um, and that was just like 
it was, it blew, you know, just like totally disrupted my life. It was one of the most painful things I've ever been through. Now I'm entire, very, very grateful that I like went through that because it was like really important for me and it was like important to understand. And, um, but, um, but it was really painful. It was like the first real painful, it was the first time I'd had my heart broken. Um, but it taught me so many things. And one of the things that taught me was that I was, a, I had been living life in a very cowardly way, like not tr like trying to like just pr protect myself from bad things happening. And then this bad thing happened anyway you know? Um, and so then it sort of like freed me a little bit to be like, well, if bad things are going to happen anyway, you might as well go for what you want. And so that was the sort of the, that was the mindset that I was now having as like the administrative assistant. I was like, I was sort of miserable because like I'd had my heart broken. I was a disaster dating people. Like I, I was, I had a big mess. Like I'd I was like 30 years old. I'd like was, you know, was a teacher. I was making whatever, $20,000 a year. If that, I think I was making $19,000 a year. And, um, and, uh, and I was just like, this is, you know, this is my life and I'm just going to try for this. Like this, like I was sort of like, you weren't living had, the dream. I was not living the dream. And this was the only thing that felt like it could lead anywhere. And so I was just like, I'm just going to, I'm going to really, really try. Um, and it was the first time in my life, I think, that I had really let myself just wholeheartedly try for something that I really wanted. Um, I mean, I'd been a good student and stuff like that, but like I'd I'd been like I'd 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 studied the things that I thought I should study, but I had never actually tried for something that I wanted. Did you get um, any external help? Like, did you read books? Did you talk to mentors, or was it really just on the job, trying to rise to the occasion? It was on the job, trying to rise to the occasion, and then. Um, and I think there was something about it, like it felt very good. Like I remember, I also was I was in grad school at the time. Also, it was like I was like also like applying for grad school because I was like I got maybe this will be my way out, you know. Um, and so I was in grad school, and I had like this grad. I was had a part time job at the grad school and part time job at This American Life as the administrative assistant. During which I got to sit in on their story meetings, and so it was just like this big meeting where you discuss like what are we going to put on the show, and you're kicking around ideas, and you're discussing plot points and story ideas, and then I was like working with this like regional planning commission as part of my greet, you know, sort of like I was, it was part of my graduate program and like just the difference between the two experiences, like being the administrative assistant for this American life was so much more compelling to me than being this arguably more high level sort of thing where I was like working in like, sort of like this big in my field that I was studying. And I was just so much more compelled by being the administrative assistant that I was just like, well, that it felt pretty obvious. Like it felt like, Oh, this is the thing I should be this is the thing that I should be doing and I should be trying for it. And it, and it just felt the the right, like I was finally in the right like 30, place doing what you wanted to be doing years old or 32 years old. I was finally in the right place. Well, yeah. and you've got a lot of responsibility quickly. You produce yes. amazing shows there. And... Yeah. So then I rose to the ranks. I had like, I kicked around a bunch of stuff. Actually, one of the things that happened, this is like, one of the things that happened was that, um, Ira gave me this really great feedback because I, I I'd actually gotten to produce this one show um, as the administrative system because again they were so strapped for it. I was I, he was like here can you do this and so it. I did this thing and it was like ended up being the show that was like pretty successful I I didn't do much at all but it was like a little baby step in the right direction and um and I came in the next day and like was like hey so like does this mean I can be a producer like am I not going to be the administrative assistant anymore and he was like no I was like why and I did that and he was like yeah but you still don't know what you're doing and if I don't have money to hire a producer and if I did I wouldn't hire you I would hire somebody with more experience and it was really I was really bummed about that but it was also just like really bracing and honest and 
and not mean, it was just like honest, you know, and it was really great feedback. And I was like, well, what would you need me to do to actually get hired? And he was like, I don't know, you should probably like quit and freelance. And so I did, oh, like I did. quit and wow. I freelance. So I quit the administrative assistant job and I freelanced for a year and a half. And I got to the point where I was like, I had assignments and that was a big learning point for me. Like I I'd worked with lots of other editors and I did a lot of radio stories and a lot of like print stories and I wrote for magazines. And that was like where I started like actually getting, getting the ball rolling and started to like feel like a little bit of competence. And then there was a job opening and I, I wasn't even going to apply for it when it was finally available. I was like, no, I got my, I got my career. I'm fine. And then I talked to my cousin. He was like, are you sure? Cause you really wanted that a year and a half ago. I was like, oh yeah, you're right. And then I desperately wanted it the minute I applied. I was like, oh my God, I hope I get it. I'm going to be crushing it. And that's it. not that much later. Yeah, no, it was a year and a half later. It wasn't, it wasn't. Well, you know, so like, in the mindset world, we call what you did taking massive action, meaning you don't just like try one thing. You try a whole bunch of things, right? You went out and produced a bunch of shows. Yes. You're like, let me also try graduate school. Let me also apply for this job. Yeah. Right. And then you got back in. And we are going to fast forward a bit because yes. I really want to get to like where to you are now. Yeah. So, okay, you spent 20 years with Ira. There's an yeah. incredible episode on Without Fail where you interview him that I just loved where you guys tell that whole story. So yeah. I highly recommend that to anybody. Yeah, Without Fail is my is the new my latest podcast that I do where I interview I interview people and I interviewed my friend and colleague and former mentor. Yeah, and you were yeah. like really, really gracious about it yeah. too. It just gave him a lot of props for everything you learned. But I, you know, I'm really interested in your mindset journey of how did you go from, okay, I'm working for this, you know, megastar in public radio, I've produced some amazing shows, but I'm going to go out on my own, right? A lot of people have that thought, but then they don't do it. Yes. Why did I do that? Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm I'm worried that I'm giving you because I I don't feel like I'm, I'm, I'm a mystery to myself, I guess. I don't feel like I take a lot of, um, intentional actions, <laughs> but I think I do, but I don't feel that way. You know, I guess from the outside, it does look like I took a pretty intentional action it, in the inside. It was just sort of like, it was just like this gradually feeling thing where I was sitting inside public radio, public radio was sort of like having this moment. I'd started this other thing called planet money um, with Adam Davidson, who was like my friend and colleague at, at, at NPR and we had done this big story for this American life about the financial crisis. It was, it was, it was a big hit. People loved it. And we were like, okay, we got to do more of that. And I didn't even think that Adam convinced me that we should eventually he convinced me. So we started this other show called planet money. And to me, it was like sort of an experiment. I was like, are people really going to care that much about like finance and economics? Like who No. And then people loved it and it became this big show. And so like, I was my like, my 15 year old well, even listens to it. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, if, if, if we can start a, a podcast about business and finance that people find interesting, then like, what can't you start a podcast about? And so that was the sort of thing where I was like, okay, we can, there's this thing now, there's this digital delivery system, there's on-demand listening, there's hunger for this kind of storytelling, there's hunger for this kind of reporting, and we just should make more of it. And so I was trying to get that to happen. And I was like, I know now, I know how to do it. I've worked at This American Life, I've done this stuff, I've done Planet Money, I, I, I can turn this trick again a couple of times, like we can figure this out. And I was just trying to make it happen inside the public radio system. And it's just not set up that way. It's 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 hard for it to sort of like invest at a massive resources. You know, it's hard, so I guess, like, to take massive action. My own company. Right, hard <laughs> yeah. to take massive action and in a huge bureaucracy. Yeah. And if you want to take massive action, you sort of have to like take massive risk, which is to sort of leave and find the people who are accustomed to that, which is like VCs, you know, for better or worse, like VCs, like, you know, there's like, 
it wasn't even like we did we actually didn't take specific i now know the difference between different kinds of investors and we actually didn't have that many people who were like classic venture investors we but like a lot of angels we had some angels yeah. and then we had some like sort of like growth investors and well like so there was a little obstacle yeah. between you and creating gimlet right which was, which was raising the money money yeah all right so i want to play money. a little clip yeah those people are leaving the radio in droves and they're migrating to digital they're migrating to digital listening the number of Obviously, smartphone handsets are going through the roof. The audio dashboard is becoming digital. iTunes radio, podcasting is all going to be on your dashboard. Um, and there's this whole world of... So there's all these people going there. And I want to start a company that will create the content for all these people to listen to who are like moving into the digital future slash present. Digital future slash present? Yeah. Who says that? All right, I'm going to borrow an Alex Bloomberg line. Are you ready? <laughs> yes. How does it feel listening to that? <laughs> oh, man. I Well, I listened to it so many times in making that podcast episode that you played from. So I've, I've, I've almost been inured to the embarrassment of it. But even today, even having listened to that over and over and over again, it still like it makes me cringe. Um, because it was just like I was so unprepared and I didn't I didn't know what I was doing. And I wasn't and I, it was funny, like I'd built my whole career on like being a really sort of tight, precise storyteller. And I couldn't tell the story of what I was trying. So what was the mindset thing going on there? I think it was like a bunch of things. I think it was just sort of like a fear, like not trying to figure out like, how am I going to do this? Like feeling super intimidated by this like guy, the super rich guy that I was pitching. Um, I got out there and it's like one of these things, I don't know if this happens to you, but like for me, I'm just like, well, yeah, it's going to be easy. Like, why wouldn't they give me money? And then I get out there and all of a sudden you see yourself in a different context and you're just like, wait a minute, this guy gives money to like Mark Zuckerberg and like, you know, like Evan Williams, who started Twitter and like gigantic, gigantic, huge entrepreneurs. And like, that's who I'm going to be judged against. I'm not going to be judged against like, am I going to do it better than like the local public radio station? I'm going to be judged against, am I going to do it better than Mark Zuckerberg? And I'm not like, right. I'm, well, there's and no once way. that narrative starts yeah. going, right? Then, then you're, you're in self-sabotage like, land. And then you're like, and then you're just like, <laughs> well, what do I, why am I even doing this? Like, why would anybody give me money? And like, once you start thinking that way, then nobody's going to give you money. If you don't believe that they should, then nobody will believe that they should. So, um, so that is a big piece of the mindset that yeah, made that start, happen. Because yeah. look, it's not like you don't know how to talk or pitch, right? Yes. You've pitched a million things. Yeah. So when I listen to that clip, I'm like, oh, it's because he didn't do the mindset work before going to the meeting. Like when we help people prepare for investor meetings, mm -hmm. we're always talking about like get on a peer level with them in your mind. Because yes. if you go in feeling like – I call it the popsicle stick test. I'm mm -hmm. like if there was a popsicle stick between you and the person, are you looking up at them? Yes. And they're looking down at you. Yeah. In that case, this meeting is not going to go well. Yeah. And I think and, and I think sort of like the, the corollary to that is that you have to feel like you're not asking them for something. Totally. You have to feel like you're you're letting them in on something. Yes. Well, that's the peer thing, yeah. right? It's like yeah. I'm always reminding entrepreneurs, you know what? They can't make more money without you. Yes. Like, have you seen the rates at the bank? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? They need you're, you. You're necessary. And like, and we, you know, and, 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 and then once it was up and run, but I didn't know that. I didn't know how any of this stuff worked. I was also just very new to the whole world. I also think I was pitching, you know, whatever. I think I had this theory that like, um, I, that like I would be, I would be judged on my prior work. You know, that like, well, look, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. And so why wouldn't I be able to do it again? Which I think that gets you, that got me the meeting. I think I wouldn't have gotten the meeting without the prior work, but that doesn't get you the investment. 
like to get you the investment, you really have to lay out the vision for what's the next thing. Cause like nobody's going to give you money on the thing you did before. All right. Well, even if you didn't pitch it that well, yeah. but you did kind of build it. I yeah. mean, what you built is not that different from what you pitched. Yes. So we built, ended up building like something that was like remarkably similar to the initial pitch, right? Like it was like a, a network of like, you know, a bunch of, you know, different podcasts. I think I said three to five in the first year and it ended up being like three to five in the first year. And like we monetized them. And like, in fact, I think one of the things that was crazy was listening back to that was like, I, I think the projections I gave for how we would monetize and what our audience would be, we sort of blew through those this first year. Like it was actually, we were able to monetize way more effectively than we thought. And we were able to, um, shout out my co-founder, Matt Lieberman, uh, who built an incredible sales team, Anna Sullivan, who was like, ran our sales team in the beginning, was just like on fire. And, um, we were able to monetize way better and we were able to, um, and the audiences were just bigger. Like, I think we were able to get like, I never got Chris to give, give us, you know, to invest early on. Um, what ended up happening is we ended up, but I was recording the whole time, right? I was recording all my pitches to all these investors. And my theory was like, well, at least maybe this will make some noise, right? Like this will, people will care about this journey. Right. And yeah, it made for a great episode. It was an amazing, yeah, right? And like it was like, classic. and as it was happening, I was like, oh my gosh, this is pretty rare. You never have heard this before, really. You have never heard an actual person actually pitching an actual investor in this way. And so, um, and so I realized like, oh, I'm, this is a pretty unique thing. Like I, I have access, I have perfect access to the, my character because I'm the character and I'm really good at doing this because I've been doing it for 20 years. So I have like a, it's storyteller and access and everything is like all sort of combining. And so we were able to like make a pretty good series out of like, out of this, this event that was happening. And that became our first podcast. And then once we had an actual podcast that you could point to and be like this, this is what I want to do more of. That's then when people the investment started coming in. Totally. And then it was like, it all changed. Everybody wanted in. But once you had something to show, that makes a lot that of sense. This right? That's is why my... they always say have a prototype. Yes. Yeah, all that. Yeah. Coming up, the moment Alex realized you can't share everything with everyone when you're the boss. If you've been listening to this podcast and thinking you might want some help with your own go big mindset, you can get a free 45-minute Accelerate session with us, and we'll help you figure out where you're at in your business and where you need to go. Just go to scalewithjulia.com. That's scalewithjulia.com. There's a 20-minute free video training there and a place to set up a call with us. This call could be the first step in getting closer to the life you imagined when you started the business. Mention the Million Dollar Mind podcast. We'll send you a free chapter from the book Million Dollar Women, all about delegating. We look forward to hearing about the changes you'll make in your business after reading it. Set up a call at scalewithjulia.com. It seems to me that you have this vulnerability 
superpower where like <laughs> you're able to just be vulnerable. And like I asked a couple of friends, like, what would you want to hear Alex talk about? And one guy was like, how does he do that? Like, is he just like that? Did he cultivate that? Like, you may not even realize that's a superpower. Right. But like Brene Brown, do you have your ever yeah. like Brene oh, Brown? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she always says, vulnerability is the last thing that I want to show you about me. Uh-huh. But it's the first thing I want to see in you. Right. We love when other people are vulnerable, yeah. but we hate being vulnerable, yeah. myself included. By yes. the way. Yes. So how do you do it? And is it something you have to cultivate and work on? I think, I mean, I think it's something that um, has, it, I would say that this comes out of my career in, in audio in particular. One of the things that I say about audio is that like, um, as mediums go, there's all different kinds of media, right? And every every media is 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 specifically good at certain things, right? Like for in terms of information density, there's nothing better than the written word, right? You can just get across so much, you can consume it so quickly. In terms of like spectacle, there's nothing better than film, the the image, right? The moving image. Audio is great at emotional intimacy. And at, and if you are going to have a career in audio and you're gonna be any anywhere good at it, you start to recognize that and you start to like go for it in the subjects you're interviewing you start to recognize when they're being actually honest you start to be able to hear it because you know the audience can hear it too and so you become super attuned in doing that work and understanding like this is what i want out of my my subjects you start to i started to like sort of mirror it for them and then also recognize it and you recognize when people are being fake with you and then you recognize when you're being fake with people and and so part of it is just recognizing it in yourself, because I think a lot of us would say, no, I was being honest, even when we deep down, we know we weren't. But like, we're, that's not, we, I don't think that, I don't think that's even aware, we're not even aware of that sometimes. Like, we don't know that we're lying to ourselves and the other people, right? And so the first thing is to realize when you are being emotionally dishonest with yourself. And that's hard. But I think part of it was just like this, this, there's this weird training that happens when you are working in this medium that rewards emotional honesty, you start to pick up on it in other people and you start to pick up on it yourself. And I think that's what happened with me is that like, I just, it, it, I just started to realize um, how, when I was doing it myself. And the other thing I realized is that the thing that people were most afraid to say when they said it, it's what made everybody love them the most. People love it when you're honest. It's just so refreshing. It's so, it's people, we all hunger for connection, right? And we're all also afraid of each other. And so like we, we put everybody off, but we also just really hunger for connection. And so when you, when, when you can provide that for people, you're rewarded for it. And so that was, it that gave me um that seeing that reinforced over and over and over in my career i think it gave me a little bit more of the courage to do it cuz i'd seen it happen for other people and it worked out fine that's i think the reason people don't want to be vulnerable is that they're afraid right they're afraid i'll be vulnerable and then i'll be laughed at or i'll be taken advantage of or something something bad will happen is it ever a liability alex like have you ever had a moment where you're like actually i wish i didn't share all that or being vulnerable is hard. Um, yeah, of course it is sometimes. Yeah, sometimes, you know, you're vulnerable with people or you're too honest or you're too open and like um, people have taken advantage of that. Um, I don't know, my uh, my colleague, Jim Grau, who's a management consultant, he, he, uh, he remembers this business school study that was done where it was like basically they had, a, they, they surveyed all these people about like their practices in in business. And he was like, basically, 
there's it divides pretty broadly into two camps like the the like i'm gonna screw you before you screw me camp and then the i'm just gonna operate with like the most upstanding integrity integrity as possible and actually both of those camps are successful in business and where you get into trouble is where you mix it up (laughs) it's like sort of sometimes you're honest and sometimes you're trying to screw people and he was like those are the people who are unsuccessful and so you just gotta pick a lane basically and i feel more comfortable just going the vulnerable route like it's what i'm more accustomed to and trying to go that way and occasionally yes i'm somebody's going to take advantage of that but that's okay because the 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 overall benefit is is far outweighs the occasional times you get taken advantage of and you've given us some incredible insights into other people's lives and allow us to kind of be right there and get vulnerable with them so thank you that's like a gift that you're giving all of us so thank you for that yeah absolutely um what about your mindset journey along the way so the alex who was in chicago you know working with russian refugees then teaching got up the gumption to go to This American Life, make a name for yourself there, left, started Gimlet. Like, what was that journey along the way internally? Are you the same person or do you feel like you had to reinvent? Well, you always, I I mean, I think one, I, I feel like the same person. I don't know if I am. I think I want to say I'm the same person. Um, I think I've learned, I think I'm a little bit uh more i'm a wiser i'm a little bit i'm braver um i think uh and i'm um and i i think um i'm i hope i'm a lot uh a lot more tolerable to be around (laughs) like i think one of the things that like i don't know being a young white guy you're just so full of you just shit all the time you don't know it <laughs> but like you're when you listen to yourself, yourself doing that pitch are you like oh i, I kind of remember what it feels like to be him but i don't feel like that anymore like you know oh, so much no more i very much now. no i very much still feel like that person do. i don't yeah oh yeah oh yeah 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 i think i think because i think the thing that the the thing that i've learned is that like there's no you're never there you know, there's always, it's, it's always like, if you're, if your business is successful, it's always like throwing you curveballs, right? There's always something new. Um, just the, the, the process of being successful. Um, and I'll give you an example. Like I think at Gimlet, so we started, we started, um, you know, we started and we were like this like tiny band of people in this like sort of like dusty office, um, with used furniture. And then we started growing and we moved into a new office and, you know, by like year three, we were at like 50 or 60 people and we have like, you know, these glass doors and sort of exposed brick and like business cards and like stenciling on the wall. And it looks like a real office. And so the people that start working at Gimlet then feel like, well, this is a real business place. Whereas you, there was no way you could have that illusion when you started with us in the very beginning. Like you were like this, I'm working in a, the attic of a thrift store, <laughs> you know, like this is what it feels like. So you just, you knew what you were getting into. Right. It was and like it, a bunch of storytellers and yeah. then it became much more of like a business. And it was chaos. Like. You knew it was chaos and you understood that. It was like, we're starting this business. We don't know what we're doing. Everybody was on board for like the adventure of that. By the time we were like, you know, sort of like two or three years in, we still didn't really know what we were doing. Like we're in this brand new landscape. Things can change at any time. The industry is nowhere near settled. Everything changes. Um, we're, I'm trying to figure out, like, I've never run a company of 50 people before. I'm learning all about the challenges of that, making all sorts of mistakes as a leader. And, um, but people have the impression that like, 
because we have stenciling on the door and because our offices are nicer that we have our shit together. And so like, that was the thing that I didn't. And so, and I have to know that, like, I have to, as the leader, know people think that I have my shit more together than I do. And therefore they're going to like think of me a certain way. And what I tried to do is just be like, people, I don't have my shit together. You, you can't. The vulnerability thing. Yeah, I was trying to be like, <laughs> right. you know, hey, just so you know, I don't know what I'm doing. But then, of course, they were that like, freaks you're people the boss. <laughs> and you're, you're like, the but boss. you have you have 50 people and you have stents. Right. Like, why? How? That's irresponsible of you to be like hiring all these people and not know what you're doing. And so that didn't work. You know what I mean? And well, so, and you did have Matt, right? Which was, yeah. you both guys both talked about is like a marriage kind of. In yeah, the yeah, sense yeah. That, you know, and I know like in a lot of marriages, people take on roles, right? One person yeah. is like always the person who you know drives, and one person is yeah. always the one who figures out you know the bill paying or whatever. So it does seem like that allowed you to be kind of the artist entrepreneur, right? Like there's there's allegedly three mm-hmm. types of entrepreneurs: the artist entrepreneur, mm-hmm. the managing entrepreneur, and the entrepreneur who just wants to like build and sell, build and sell, build and sell. Yes. So do you identify with that artist entrepreneur? Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah. no. I think that was like I'm. I, yeah, or like yeah. Like I was the product guy with like who's like art science sort of person mixing it together and making the thing, and was like cared a lot about that and matt was i think definitely of the third the third type the bill like the big learning for both of us was just how to manage people i think that was our biggest thing was Um, that part of your mindset shift like what's one big mindset shift you made along the way from when you started gimlet to today now being part of spotify i think i think just embracing um my leadership role and and realizing that like being a leader means that you don't get to share everything with everybody and you have to like pick your spots and you have to like be okay with that. Like, I think there's a certain size where you can be everybody's friend and we're all, you can, you can sort of like pretend that it's not a hierarchy because it sort of isn't. And you are all sort of on the same team and you're just the captain of the team, but like you're, we're all on the team. And then there's a certain size at which that's like, that's like, it's a bad look. It's because it's so not true that, um, when you're trying to pretend it is, it just upsets people. And, um, and I think that has been a big change for me is that like, I am now, I, I, and it's, it's sort of, it's, I don't want to say it sucks because obviously there's been tremendous benefit to me personally. Like I'm interviewed on podcasts like yours. I'm, I've gotten very wealthy from doing all this. So like, obviously there's tremendous benefit, but there is something about it. That's like, it's a little bit of, um, it's a little like alienating. Like you are, it's not the part you love. It's not the part you love. And it's also, but uh, as a person in the world, because we strive for connection, I, 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 you are now forced to not connect in the same way. You know, you can't like sidle up to somebody and just like bitch about, you can't gossip. I really miss gossiping. (laughs) I really do. And I loved being in an office and just like sharing an inside joke about like somebody's stupid trait or whatever, you know, the stuff that you do when you're in the office. But when you're the boss, it's like, well, you can't do that anymore. You can't do it about anybody. You can't, you can sort of do it about yourself. (laughs) That's it. Right. (laughs) Good thing you're self-deprecating. But then you you can't do it that much either because then that just looks weird and you're like falsely (laughs) modest and like whatever. So I'm curious, is there anything you've read or seen or heard lately that had a big impact on you that you might want to share with the listeners of Million Dollar Mind? This was not super recent, but it's a it's a thing. It's a it's a piece of sort of like popular culture that I found very helpful. Um, And it was this that I've used in sort of like helping me think about like Gimlet and talent and like what what we're looking for when we're looking for talent. Um, It was called The Defiant Ones. You ever see that? It was the, it was this it was this documentary. It was about um, Dr. Dre and Jimmy 
Yobin, the the guys who created Beats. Um, but it was basically like it's a multi part documentary about their lives, and they're both they both have a background as producers. Um, and like producer is a weird word, right? It's like manager. It's like, what does that even mean? What do you do? Um, but like I, what I took away from that documentary is like, oh, that is what a producer does is a producer is a person who can sort of do it themselves, but actually really loves working collaboratively with other people to like, and just like, they have this like sort of this really unique sense of like, I'm going to blend my own expertise and my own ideas and talents with yours and we're going to make something beautiful together. Um, and I'm going to like have get like enjoyment out of that. And that's a pretty rare person. I feel like I felt a lot. I feel like that is my key talent. Like I am that, like I am, that was my job at this American life. And that's what I love to do. And I've considered that to be like sort of the, the, actually the thing I'm best at. And, um, and I'm, and looking and recognizing that in like, Oh, that's Dr. Dre. That's what he does. And like, there's a scene where he's like in the booth, like, over and over and over again with Easy E, <laughs> like just getting him to get the lyric right because apparently Easy E couldn't rap at all. And just like boys in the hood are boys in the hood are boys <laughs> and over and over and over and over again can't get it out. And like and Dr. Dre is just like sitting there and be like, okay, do it one more time, do it one more time. And I and I just like brought me back to all the times I've sat in the booth with people like coaching them through like recording sessions. And it was just so and it was like and but he had just like he was just like seeing it all and like getting the ideas and then having the ideas, and um and it was uh. And, and I was like, oh, that's a helpful prototype that you don't see elucidated that often, but those people are key. They're the glue to any creative enterprise is like the people who can do it themselves, but also want to help other people do it and like get off on that. That's, it was like sort of crystallizing that prototype for me was really, really helpful. And so now I sort of look for that person because I, you know, I know to like make any sort of successful as we expand our creative outpouring like that those people are going to be key wow i can't wait to check that out yeah thanks really for cool. that tip yeah. that's awesome yeah. well where can people find you alex if they want to follow in your journey uh, they can <laughs> so the startup podcast is like we we've wrapped it up but you can just definitely check out the journey there's like a spotify page that has the whole thing the the, the um the journey from the beginning to the to the very end through the acquisition and um and then that's where I'm going to be sort of announcing new things that are coming up this year. And like, and then also without fail, which is the the show that I host, you can listen to that. That's also available on Spotify or wherever. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming in. This was great and good to catch up. Yes. And thank you. we live some good times too. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, awesome. Alex. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening and stay brave and go big. Million Dollar Mind is a production of Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019, Julia Pimsler.